Welcome to The Well Podcast. We pray that this message ministers to you and blesses you as you listen. I started out my study uh, for this message on the veil. Because as, uh, as anyone who's been in church for some period of time, we know that as Christ died on the cross, uh, the veil in the temple was rent from top to bottom. And I'm like, okay, great. Well, was it like tissue paper? Was it, you know, how was it made? What was it, you know, and what's the, really the significance of it? Because I'd always heard things, but I wanted to dig into the word and read it for myself. And so that's where my study started. And a couple of very interesting things I read about the veil um, was uh, obviously this was uh, not the first time there had been a veil, um, and I'm going to talk more about that in a minute. But but this was Solomon's temple um, in Jerusalem where this veil hung, um, and the veil could have been as much as three inches thick. So for it to tear, it was not just a minor event; it was a tremendous event, and it certainly would have been one that people noticed. Um, so that was the first thing, and that's, that was kind of the hook that got me. I'm like, oh, i got to find out more about this. And then, believe it or not, I really didn't get very far with the veil. But what that led me to was the temple. And then I looked at the design of the temple, and that led me back to the tabernacle in Moses' time, because that was, that was the first temple. And that's what we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, and of course, you know, as, as you know me, I, I, I like the Old Testament. Uh, it's not to say I don't like the New Testament, but I like the Old Testament too. Um, people will say the, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, meaning that the New Testament is within the words in the Old Testament. It's just hidden. And so what you see in the Old Testament is a lot of signs, and they call it types and shadows. You will see characteristics and things that foreshadow the future. And the temple is exactly that. So let's get into it. So Exodus 25.8. I'm sorry, I should have given you scripture, Sophie, ahead of time, but good luck with that. Exodus 25.8. God's desire here, it says, Have the people of Israel build me a holy sanctuary so that I can live among them. It was God's desire to be with his people. That is, God's desire is to be with his people. And that is a characteristic of God that has and will carry out through all of history is that he has a desire to be with you and I. That is his desire. And so don't you know that every time there's an opportunity, he is going to hint at, hey, why don't we spend some time together? And he's going to draw you. And so it's God's desire to come and live with his people. And there's a word here in the Greek, and sometimes it's tra translated as tabernacle. And so when you see that word tabernacle, which is what the, the, the original construction of Moses' tent was called, was the tabernacle. And so that, that essentially means a place of dwelling or a place where you live. Okay? So in Exodus 25, 8, God says to build him a sanctuary that he can come and tabernacle or live among them while in the wilderness. And so Moses, over the next five chapters or so, is given a very exacting design of the tabernacle. 
And so it goes, it goes literally from the materials to how far apart things are to the design that's supposed to be on different elements. And there is a tremendous amount there that I'm not even going to touch. Just to know that God gave very exacting um, directions for how this is to be built. And so the, the interesting thing about this first uh, tabernacle um, is that it was portable. Because the, uh, the, the Isra- uh, um, Israeli, um, the tribe of Israel at this time was in the wilderness. And so they were a nomadic tribe working their way through the wilderness to get to the promised land. So everything was portable at this point. And you'll see that a little more. I've got some pictures. If, uh, if technology will cooperate, we've got some pictures that we'll go into in just a minute. So just some history here. So this tabernacle was eventually replaced by the temple in Jerusalem. So once they entered the promised land and they had their homeland secured, now they were permanent residents and they built a permanent uh, temple in Jerusalem, or so they thought. So uh, in the wilderness, that was about 1400 BC and about 1000 BC, they were um, in Jerusalem at this time and King David was given uh, kind of the mandate to build the temple that passed on to his son, King Solomon. And the temple in Jerusalem followed the same design as the tabernacle. It was a little bit larger because they had to accommodate more people, but it followed the same design as in the tabernacle of Moses. That was later destroyed, coincidentally, about 400 years later. And there's a theme here, and I don't fully understand it, and I haven't fully read it. But they, they left Egypt supposedly around 1400. The, the first... Uh, they were in Jerusalem and built the temple 400 years later. 400 years later, it's destroyed. How long were they in Egypt? 400 years. There's something there on that timeline I don't fully understand, but there's something there about 400 years or actually maybe even 440 years, but um, there's not real good history books from 1400 BC. Okay. Um, so the so it's destroyed by the Babylonians, um, and uh, King Nebuchadnezzar uh, around 600 BC, and then it, uh, the Jews return uh, roughly 70 years later and begin to rebuild the temple. Um, and at least what I read, it sounded like the temple continued to be under construction, like it never was quite finished, all the way up until 37 BC when King Herod, during the Roman occupation, rebuilt the temple. And this is the temple that would exist in Jesus' time. And so this temple didn't last 400 years, only made it to about 70 AD or about 100 years later. And it was destroyed by the Romans um, because of the uprisings of the Jews. Okay. Um, so all of these temples, the important thing to recognize here is that all of these temples followed the same pattern. So when we talk about what's inside the temple, the scale changed, the opulence changed over time, but all of the same furnishings were there. All right, so let's look at the the temple, uh, and this should be the first slide. Thank you very much. Okay, this is the layout of Moses' tabernacle, and you can see here all the tent pegs around the outside. You can see the poles uh, that are laying there, and there's another set of poles you can't really see in there, but they're inside, and that's how they carried it. They had rings on the corner of these things that would slide poles in, lift it up, and carry it. And so it was a, a portable tabernacle. Um, so every part of this tabernacle, every part of this construction had meaning and significance. 
And there is great detail in the word about every piece of this from its shape to construction to what materials they put over it. A lot of it was overlaid with gold and copper. Um, it was made out of acacia wood, a lot of it. I mean, very specific things. And I'm sure if you spend enough time on it, you can come tell me the significance of every little detail, and we can spend a lot of time together. Um, but every detail here is important. So the first thing to notice here is the outer gate. And you can see the individual standing here on, I guess that would be your right, um, looking in that gate. And so that, that outer gate is on the east side of the tabernacle. And he faces a curtain of blue, purple, and red. And this came up just in conversations here we've had lately about colors. We were talking about the, the praise flags and what the representation of all these colors are. And the blue represents authority, uh, much like we, it still does today. The men in blue, the blue and red lights, right? Uh, blue represents authority, and it has for a very, very long time. The purple represents um, royalty. I had to look at my notes. I was like, I'm not thinking of the word. But the purple represents royalty. And then, of course, the red um, is the sacrifice and the blood. So that's, that's what he's facing as he enters this east side of the tabernacle. And, of course, the, the first thing you notice is this large outside curtain. These tall white curtains effectively block your view to the outside world. Now, why is that important? Because this is holy ground. And what does it mean to be holy? Holy simply means set apart. And so this curtain simply defines a piece of ground that is set apart to God. And at each section of the tabernacle, it's further set apart. As you draw closer to God, you are further set apart from the world. Does that make sense? And even today, I think we would agree with that. The closer you get to God, the further you separate yourself from the world. And so each piece of this, this tabernacle further separates you from the world. And so inside these white curtains, you can't see the outside world. You are stepping like almost into a room, if you want to think about that, but you're stepping into a holy place. The white curtains obviously representing purity and the holiness that you're in. And so as you travel from the, from the gate um, inward, um, each area, area is further set apart, and there's a veil now between each of the subsequent areas. So in this outer court, the Israelites could come, and that's where they would meet the priest. The priests were allowed to go into the next chamber, and then only the high priest could go into the very last chamber called the Holy of Holies. So each one required another level of purity, if you will, another level of righteousness, if you will. Okay? So the first thing as you enter the, the tabernacle here, the first thing you're going to see that is going to dominate the, the view in front of you is the bronze altar. Now, this bronze altar um, was a square rectangle, and uh, it was made of wood overlaid with uh, copper, and it, within this is where they would start the fire for the sacrifice. And the, the animals that were sacrificed would go onto this altar. And so this is, this is where all of that takes place is, is in this cube that's there. And the importance of this is that it is going to dominate you because the first thing as you come into the presence of God is that it requires a sacrifice. And it reminds you, if you will, of how undone you are, of how you have stepped out of a dirty world that, that you have sinned or whatever, and you're bringing that in. And so the first thing you have to do is offer that sacrifice for your cleanliness to be restored in that. 
And so the first thing you see is a reminder of why you're there. And so this altar um, is not approached by, by the people, but you have to go to the priest, and the priest then helps you sacrifice the animal, make the offering, and then the priest carries it and puts it on the altar. Okay? So that's a, that'll be more important later. Um, and and I'm, this is all going to be pretty high level um, as I go through this. Uh, again, there's there's different levels of sacrifice. There is the 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 scapegoat. There is uh, uh, lots of details that that we could just spend a whole day on. But but I have like this fifty thousand foot view I want to give you in this. And, and I want to, at the end of this, bring it back to where we are today because every bit of this is relevant to where we are today, okay? All right, so, so you have the, the bronze altar, the altar of sacrifice. The priest would, would uh, light the fires in there or, or when the, the temple was initially, or the tabernacle was initially built, um, it said that God actually struck it and lit the initial fire in the tabernacle, Okay? All right, behind it um, is, a, is a thing called a, a laver, and it is also made of bronze. Um, and I've got a couple pictures here. Um, so one thing I'll, I'll note um, is that even with all the detailed descriptions uh, that are in the Bible, these original furnishings have been lost. They've been lost to time, to history. The Jews have been taken over by the Babylons. The Babylons carried them off, and we don't know where they, the originals went. So... A lot of what you will see in the recreations, and as you study this out yourself, is you'll see a lot of different designs. Um, because even with all the details, it says decorate it with, you know, palm branches. And palm branches are supposed to be carved into these things or whatever. Well, there's, how many different ways can you carve in a palm branch? Probably lots, right? How many different ways can you add a flower to it? Probably lots. And so you'll see a lot of differences as you, you look at these different things. Now, this labor of bronze that's here, this is where the priest would uh, ceremonially wash. So they'd wash their hands and their feet before they offered the sacrifice. And that was required for them to be clean to offer the sacrifice. Now this was also the same area where Aaron and the initial priests were anointed with oil um, when they were at the dedication of the tabernacle. Um, now, um, I've got two pictures here because I think one of them is like historically inaccurate. Um, and, and I'll show you why. The, the guy here on your left um, is dipping his hands down in the water. And the only reason I know this actually goes back to what Becky was talking about, where they were talking about the storm, stone jars at the wedding that, that Jesus turned into wine. I'm getting off on a little rabbit trail here. But in order for priests to ceremonially to wash and be ceremonial, ceremonially clean, that was a big word, um, they had to have what they called living water, which meant the water had to be moving or pouring. And so, the, um, unfortunately, uh, the people on the left here apparently didn't read that chapter, um, but as I understand it, the picture on the right is more accurate of how they would 
be cleansed because they had to pour the water over their hands and over their feet uh, in order for that living water. The water had to be moving. So it wasn't, it wasn't, I don't believe, a dip. Now, they may have different rules in the tabernacle. I didn't research all that out, but this stood out to me like a sore thumb. So I just thought I'd point that out before I threw a picture up. And y'all went, well, that's interesting. That's not what I read. But they washed with living water or moving water. Okay. All right, and so this was to, to wash the priest as they were handling the sacrifice and for them to go into the next um, piece was uh, the next, um, behind the next curtain to the holy place. And again, holy means set apart. So there's a, a curtain here that separates the courtyard now from the holy place. Now, inside this holy place, there was three pieces in here. One was the lampstand. And this is the seven-armed lampstand. Now, this lampstand provided light inside there. And it also uh, was something that the priest tended to daily. So daily, they would go in and trim the wicks and fill the, the cups at the top of this with oil. It was an oil lamp. Um, it wasn't, didn't actually have candles in it, but it was an oil lamp. Um, and they would trim the wicks daily. Um, the interesting thing is, is like, where did the wicks come from? The, well, the wicks were actually the priest's garments that after they got soiled and they couldn't be washed and cleaned well enough, they would become wicks here and would be burnt up. Um, and I find that interesting. It's almost as if that's another level of sacrifice, if you will, burning the priestly garments that God, again, instructed them to wear. So, so you have the, the seven-armed uh, seven lampstand there that is burning the olive oil and providing light into that area, and it's constantly burning. Across the room from it is a table of showbread, and there's 12 loaves here representing one of each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And this was uh, bread for the priests. They would eat it every week, and every week um, whatever was left was, was replaced. Um, also on that table was where they would keep the incense for the, for the next piece. Um, and they would keep their incense that they would take to the third article that's there, which is the... Um, um, altar of incense and so the, the altar of incense uh which is the the bottom one there um can you go back to the other picture yeah so the altar of incense stood before the veil that took you into the holy of holies and so on that they would take embers from the altar of sacrifice and so there's something here about the altar of sacrifice that has to be lit and the embers taken from it taken inside for them to offer incense in the next holy place. So there is a progression here that I see that one precedes the other, okay? And they would, they would put this incense on there. Now, the incense itself, the formula for it was holy. They could use it nowhere other than this one place. And, uh, and so they would put this incense on there, and it burned all day. And it says they would come in and refresh it morning and evening. All right. Now, um, it's called the altar of incense. Now, there's some similarities. Now, if you look at the, the detailed picture between the, the bronze altar of sacrifice out front and the altar of incense in the holy place, they're both the same shape, just different scale. Okay? All right. And then you have the inner veil. <clears throat> that separates the holy place from the holy of holies. Now, 
this inner veil, there was only one person, the high priest, that could go beyond that veil. And he could only do it one day a year, and that was the Day of Atonement. And based on what I read, it's so interesting. They would go in there, and they would really stoke up the incense so the room would fill with smoke. And the, the priest would go in, and he had to have the sacrifice of blood to take inside the veil. Um, and, and the sacrifice of blood was put on the mercy seat, and that atoned for the sins of the nation. Now, everything outside, people would bring their individual sacrifice, and that sacrifice would go on the altar of sacrifice outside and be burned. But the sins of the nation, those that didn't repent, those that, that maybe just couldn't get there, or even the poor who couldn't afford the sacrifice, could look forward to one day a year when they got a fresh start. And God in his mercy said, I will accept this for the whole nation. And I think that's so good, that's so great, and that's gracious, and it's just like God to always make a way. Now, they had to live with it all year long, so maybe they had to think a little bit harder. I don't know. I don't know the full consequence of that, but what I do know is that God was more interested in their restoration than he was in tying that sin to them. And so he made a way that they could be restored into right relationship once a year. All right, so in the Holy of Holies, it would fill with smoke. The priests would come in, and in reverence, they would fill it with smoke so that he would be less tempted to actually look up for the presence of God. And so the priest would come in, bent down, looking down, and would look as little as possible around, trying to be reverent for the presence of God, not to look upon the presence of God. And that's just how, how they revered God. And so he would come in, sprinkle, and then he would go out. Um, but in there was the Ark of the Covenant. And so this is the gold box with the two cherubim on top. Um, again, had the poles, was portable. Um, they clearly moved it from time to time. Um, the one story I'm most familiar with is when they're trying to bring the, the Ark of the Covenant back, and David is bringing it back into Jerusalem. Um, and, uh, and even at that time, there it is exposed. Everyone, I think they, they covered it similar to this. I think they had coverings over it. But um, even the men that were carrying it, um, one of them stumbled or something, and he reached up to steady it, and, and God killed him on the spot. Because he, that, was, that was the reverence that God demanded. <clears throat> and so they, they revered what was in there. Now, inside the Ark of the Covenant, had a removable top. Inside the Ark of the Covenant was Aaron's staff. And so Aaron's staff is important because uh, at some point, they were trying to decide who would be, uh, who would take care of the tabernacle and that kind of thing. And my understanding from what I read is they actually drew lots, if you will. And they brought a staff from each tribe and they laid it down and they said, we'll come back tomorrow and God will, you know, make one of these come alive. And so Aaron's staff came alive, flowered, and even produced almonds, they said, after being separated from the tree. And so that was God's way of marking who would be the, the priest. And so the, the tribe of Aaron, of course, as we know now, is the Levites. And so that was God essentially choosing the Levites as his chosen servants in the temple. All right. Um, so Aaron's staff is in there. There's a bowl of manna in there, um, which is fascinating because uh, if you know anything about manna, this was the food that the Israelites were provided in the wilderness. Um, they got to grumbling about not having their, 
their little bit of steak that the Egyptians would feed them, and, and they would always have to go out and find and gather food, and, said, and God said, okay, okay, fine, I'll provide you food. And so he provided this manna. Well, the thing about manna, it was only good for that day, unless it was the day before the Sabbath in which you would gather twice as much. But if you gathered any extra on any day of the week, it would spoil overnight, and you would have to start fresh every day. And so there's something about that sustenance that we need to have every day. And that really should point us back to, to the word, you know, the bread of life, if you will, that we need to go back to every day. And every day that should sustain us for that day. And every day we should strive to pick up more of that word and sustain us and feed our soul with that every day. So there's a bowl of manna in there that is preserved through history in that, even though outside of there it wouldn't last. All right, and then the last one are the stone tablets, and these are the tablets that, um, that Moses had brought down after God inscribed the, the Ten Commandments on that. And the, the stone tablets represent um, the law, obedience, and righteousness um, through obedience. Okay, um, so on top of the ark, there's two cherubim. The wings are pointed together. In between is the area they call the mercy seat, and that's where the, the blood is applied um, from the priest once a year. All right. So that's a lot. I'm going to take a little drink. And I know this is, is very teachy, but it's, it's going to come around. Just stay with me. Okay. All right. So so that's everything that's in the temple. Can you go back to, um, I'm not even sure which one to go back to. Um, go to the one. Yeah, let's stop here. So, So this is, Solomon's temple, you can see it's much larger than, um, go to the, the close-up of the tabernacle there. So this was the original one, um, and I, I wish I could remember the, it's 15 feet tall, and I think it's 15 feet across. I don't remember quite how long it is. The room on the end is 15 by 15, so it's just a square down on the end. I think this is 15 by 30 on this end. So, um, just probably slightly bigger than the space we're in, just to give you kind of a, a feel and a scale for it, okay? Um, and, of course, you can see the curtain there and go to the next one with the Solomon's Temple. And then, of course, you can see the veil there. Everything is just bigger. It's just scaled up, but it's, it's the same proportions as the original tabernacle. Okay, so in all of those different furnishings, um, and all of those same furnishings are, are in the, the Temple of Solomon. Um, again, they, they're all made larger. It's a, it's a permanent place for sacrifice. The Jews are growing in number. Um, when they come to the, the days where they're offering sacrifice, they have to deal with more people, and so they've made it bigger. They can handle more people. Um, but it's all the same, okay? So... Here's what I realized as I, as I looked at these and I started to dig into these is that the temple or the tabernacle is the story of redemption. It is the story of redemption. And, I, and, I'll, and I'll show you, I'll, I'll show you what I mean, okay? And this, this should be eye-opening. I hope it's eye-opening for you. All right, so first we have to go all the way back to man's fall. The original sin, Adam and Eve. We go all the way back to Genesis 3.24. 
So in Genesis 3.24, it says, after sending them out, so after God had sent Adam and Eve out of the garden, it says, the Lord God stationed mighty cherubim to the east of the Garden of Eden. So he put cherubim there to make sure they didn't turn around and come back. Okay? Now, if they, if they left going east and were to turn around and come back, where would the door be? You want to say west, right? That seems obvious, but it's not. If you leave through the east, you come back in a westerly direction, but you enter the gate on the east side of the complex. And which way is the gate facing here in the tabernacle? It's facing the east. And so even the layout of the door is inviting men to come back in, is inviting all of creation to come back in, all of creation to turn around from walking away from God and turn around and come back into his presence. So, um, and then the other piece that's obvious here, or at least I hope it's obvious, he put two cherubim to guard the, the entrance back into his presence. Now, if you walk across the tabernacle and get all the way to the middle, what's greeting you in that room? Two cherubim on top of the mercy seat. Can you see it? Can you see how all this kind of goes together? All right. So, um, let's see, where am I? Um, so, even just entering the space is indicative of a return to God's presence. Um, obviously, coming in the door, the sacrifice clearly represents Jesus. If we think about how we get to God, if we get into his presence, the, the word says that we have to repent and believe. And what are we believing on? That Jesus went to the cross for our sins. That he atoned for our sins on the cross. So we have to turn from the way we're going, turn towards God, and believe that Jesus is our sacrifice. John 129. I love this. I love this. I love this. So John 129, it says, the next day, and I'm talking about, this is John the Baptist, where he is... Um, the first time he sees Jesus uh, as an adult anyway. And it says the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. See, I'm crying because that's what happens. He says, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And at this point, Jesus had not started his ministry in his adult life. Yes, we know he taught in the temple at 12. There's big gaps in that story. We don't know where he was when he was 15, you know. But we know as an adult, he came into this presence. He walked past John, and he had no followers. He was a lone individual at this point. And John sees him, and through the spirit that talks to John, he says, this is the Lamb of God. And so the next thing in the tabernacle after the, the altar of sacrifice is the laver representing the priest. It represents the cleanness and purity and sanctification. And this speaks to the sinless nature of Christ. It speaks to how he never sinned, how he was washed clean, how, um, and there's probably even a connection here, honestly, to baptism. And I hadn't unraveled that piece of it yet. 
But there, there is a sinless nature to God that is reflected in this laver, reflected in the, the uh, process of becoming clean. And maybe it's even the process that we go through when we ask forgiveness of Christ. How he washes our sins clean of us. How we come to him as a new creation. How he wraps us in a robe of righteousness where, where our best efforts, they say, is like a dirty rag. And if you study that out, that's a dirty rag. But because we can put on his righteousness, we can be presented as clean, as if we had never been with the world. So that's the laver. That's the cleanliness in the tabernacle. And then the next place is the holy place. And in here, it's, it's, you have the, the bread and you have the, the light. And I think the, the light is indicative of the Holy Spirit that burns within us and this ever-burning presence that we should have within us. And I think it's also indicative of how Christ was led by the Spirit, how he was at one with God, how he was communing with God. And in, uh, then you have the showbread. In John uh, 6.32, Jesus is telling his uh, disciples, he says, I tell you the truth, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven. My father did. And now he offers you this the true bread from heaven. The true bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And that's who Jesus said. He's the one that came down from heaven to give life to the world. And so they said, uh, sir, give us that bread every day. And Jesus replied, I am the bread of life. And so we see Jesus reflected in the tabernacle and him being the bread of life. So, so let's just take a step back. You, you walk out of the repentance. You turn towards God. You ask forgiveness for your sins. And now you're into the daily living. And what do you need for daily living? You need that bread of life. And Jesus is that bread of life. And you need the Holy Spirit to guide you through every day. And then you come to the altar of incense. And the incense here reminds us of prayer reminds us like the, the smoke coming up off the incense, rising up to heaven. It's like our prayers that we lift to heaven. And so we, we lift our prayers to heaven, and God receives, though, and, and it says that, that he breathes them. He hears, um, ah, I got excited. But, but our prayers are like the incense rising to his nostrils. And then, it, of course, Jesus is called our high priest who makes atonement for our sins upon the altar. Hebrews 2.17 says, Therefore, it was necessary for him to be made in every respect like us, his brothers and sisters, so that he could be our, so he could be our merciful and faithful high priest before God, that he could offer a sacrifice that would take away the sins of the people, that's what Jesus did for us. He went before his God in heaven as our high priest and offered a sacrifice once and for all that we could go boldly before the throne because we're wrapped in his righteousness. We have now become priest on this world. We are, we are now priest and, and we have the authority to walk in boldly to go see our high priest who sits at the right hand of the Father. Hebrews 5, 9, it says, in this way, and it was through Jesus' suffering, God qualified him as the perfect high priest. 
and he became the source of eternal salvation for all those who obey him. So this tabernacle and this temple, albeit for ritual sacrifice and things that we don't even like to think about and all that, it really is a story and a diagram of our repentance and our return to God. But while the the temple and the sacrifices that were done there were only temporary, Jesus did once and for all eternal and so we don't, we don't have to make those sacrifices now out of obligation to try to restore our right relationship. We simply go through Jesus to the Father and seek that forgiveness. So it has been God's desire from the beginning of time to be with his people. And he has, since the beginning of time, put a plan in place to be with his people And he came and he tabernacled, he dwelt on earth to be with his people. Because that's how much God loves us. That's how much he desires for us to be in his presence and to be with him. Now, one last caveat I want to throw in here. And I think it is, uh, it is so interesting because the design of the church, not too unlike what we have here, in many ways follows the same pattern. Because when you step into a church, you leave the world behind. You come in the doors and church is a place of sanctuary. It's a church where you come looking for the presence of God. And once you're inside the church, we recognize the sacrifice of Jesus. In in everything we do, in a lot of the conversations, the decorations, all those things, it reminds us, much like the altar of sacrifice would remind us in the tabernacle, of what Jesus went and did for us, how he sacrificed for us. And of course, as we join with that, there's this word repentance that we go through in our walk. And repentance simply means to turn. Turn away from your ways, what you think is right, and turn towards God. And if we think about the garden and how they were cast out of the garden, it was the same action that they would have to take would be to turn. And then, of course, every church, well, maybe not every church, but many churches have a place up front, a bench, uh, a step, a line in the carpet. (laughs) That we call his altar. And we invite people to come up to the altar. When the Spirit's moving, when, when they need agreement in prayer, we invite them to come to the altar. And this is the, not the altar of sacrifice, because that's done in your heart, but this is the altar of incense, where we're going to come together, and we're going to pray together, and we're going to let our voices go up to heaven. 
And the cool thing about it is, is there's no, there's no veil. There's no separation. So you can boldly come. And it takes a little effort. You got to go. You got to put one foot in front of the other. You've got to lift your voice. Because that veil was torn. Because God doesn't want to be separate from his people. The word says that we are now temples in our own selves. And we have to, in our heart, in our mind, we've got to turn from what the world says. We've got to turn towards God. We've got to repent. We've got to ask Jesus to come and be a part of our life. We've got to let that Holy Spirit come in that's going to provide us light that's going to shine light on our lives. We've got to dig into the word to receive that bread of life. And we've got to take our needs to him in prayer. So yes, it's a tent and it's a building in the wilderness, but it is all of us. So as we're individual temples, the word also says we're priests. And so we are asked now to not be inside the walls of a temple, but we are asked to be priests that wander outside the walls of the temple. We're supposed to carry all of that with us, and wherever we go becomes the temple of God. The people that we run into get to experience the temple of God. They get to experience the story of redemption. That's our role. That's our job. We want to thank you for listening in today. At The Will, we believe in cultivating a culture for more of God. Wherever you are in your relationship and walk with God, we believe that there is always more for those who diligently seek after Him. If you would like to find out more, please check out our website at thewellmichigan.com connect with us on social media.